one of the most important records from this early 90s period that's turning 20 and should be getting its due, um, in my view, is Morrissey's Vox Hall and I. And the thing that is so frustrating about this is that because Morrissey has come back and, and is toured and has this whole second swing that's gone on um, since the mid-2000s, where he's come back you know, two or three times and become a present tense uh, music celebrity all over again, particularly in America. Um, in the UK, he's, I mean, of course, he's, he's a god, he, you know, everyone sings his praises, but I think younger kids sort of view him as a seriously um, out-of-touch codger or something, I don't know. But Pitchfork's run a review of Vauxhall on its anniversary. I don't know the guy who wrote it, but he actually seems to be a, a pretty good um, critic, a pretty good writer and thinker. So it's not like I, I felt like his review in particular was, you know, monstrous or, or wrong in some way. We just had a really different opinion about this record, which I think is by far the best album Morrissey ever released. He's repeatedly stated that as well. After it came out, he said it was the best record he'd ever done by so far that he didn't think he was ever going to make another record and he was going to retire. Well, obviously he didn't. He came out with a single like immediately after in Boxers and went on the phenomenal Boxers tour, the UK leg of the Boxers tour in January 95 or February. I don't know. I didn't go to any of the shows. I didn't live in England. Um, that was probably one of the strongest, like the Your Arsenal tour is famously the, the most rocking and aggressive and tight uh, band that Morrissey's ever fronted. Um, but the, the Boxers tour was where it had a little more maturity to it in the playing and in his persona. The Boxers tour is where the set lists became a little more mature, the songs were a little richer, and Morrissey's performance was actually a little bit subdued um, compared to the hysterical you know, period that had, had surrounded his initial solo career, and particularly your arsenal, where um, some things happened that were sort of strange, and I'll get to that in a minute. When Vauxhall and I is being written, um, Mick Ronson, who produced your arsenal and is a legendary, you know, figure in the history of British rock music, had passed away. Uh, and so had a couple of other close associates of Morrissey's, Nigel Thomas, I forget, someone else, but uh, you know, the, the deaths, the gravity of those deaths, and the fact that he felt like he had kind of almost exhausted what he wanted to say in a kind of a first person, you know, narrative way, the, the poetry or whatever was inside Morrissey, that well was kind of tapped. And after Vauxhall is when he becomes a caricature. It's, it's after that immediately that with boxers, he starts just playing with tropes in such a more obvious way. Um, and it, it, it's really, it's, it's kind of unfortunate, possibly unavoidable, that as he aged, he would become a little bit more caricatured, but um, it happened really alarmingly fast because he was overreacting to the fact that this sanguine, incredibly elegant record in Vauxhall um, was very honest. It was so honest and it was so much of him that um, he was tapped. And so his choice was keep going or stop. Once he committed to the idea that he was going to keep going, there's an elation and a creative you know, burst and a kind of a rebirth that goes along with that, where you start to get your, you know, your weapons back and you start to feel confident and you, you come up with concepts. And that's what happened with Boxers and then Southpaw Grammar soon after it. Um, he started writing for effect, let's say. But the thing that really fascinates me, and this goes back to when he's in the Smiths, 
there's a wonderful quote, and I believe it's in uh, the Morrissey and Marr book. What they're talking about is when Morrissey's a kid and he's spending all his time in his room um, writing and reading plays and, and obsessing over James Dean and, and you know, quote-unquote, being depressed, um, someone made the comment that he was arming himself, which I thought was the perfect summation of what Morrissey was doing and what countless other great poets have done. Uh, in their young adult lives, when they feel you know impotent, they feel that they haven't figured out a way to express themselves in a way that's received, and then that reception confirms the kind of you know communication and sharing emotionally has been executed on the author's terms, like they, it completes them, right? So you know the thing I said the word depressed, and I you know I said it in quotes because I personally I think it's a really crucial distinction that Morrissey is not a depressed person or a depressive person, however much he may say that. What he is, is despondent. And that's a completely different thing. Despondency comes from a more outsized sense of, of empathy and a feeling that, you know, there's these multiple injustices that occur on a daily basis or there's so much in our history that we live in denial of. Um, the Moores murders had obviously been the, the, the initial controversy that launched the Smiths in the first place. The only reason anyone ever heard about them was because they were being banned for talking about a really horrendous subject, the serial killers, who um, had murdered people in Manchester. And it was, you know, the whole, the whole British culture at that time uh, of, you know, to be quiet about it. It's a horrible thing, but we're not all doing that, so let's not sensationalize it. You know, for a variety of reasons, that was considered the proper attitude to have. You don't want to celebrate what these people are doing. You don't even want to acknowledge it. Just lock them up and throw away the key or, you know, in the old days, burn them at the stake, whatever it is. Um, Morrissey and definitely, you know, modern American media society, um, we're going to just dig in that until it's exhausted. And we're going to keep going and countering each other and issuing new, you know, observations and talking points and filing more outrage, more indignation, you know, anything we can to help us digest this and reassure ourselves that we're not going to do that someday. You know. Morrissey's whole psychology works in a very bipolar way. When he first comes out with Viva Hate, Fresh Out of the Smiths, Obviously, he's trying to make the most dramatic and distinct, you know, statement he can as a solo artist. So he's working with Stephen Street, writing songs. Uh, Vinnie Riley's around, uh, Manchester staple. Morrissey has known Vinnie Riley since, you know, before Joy Division was a band. Um, and what what happens with Viva Hate is that you know, if you listen to Strange Ways Here We Come, the Last Smiths record, you've got Death of a Disco Dancer. You've got, you know, and even in A Russian and Push and The Land is Ours, there, there's kind of some noodling going on, some, some electronic stuff, and it was a big, you know, controversy for them when they used a synthesizer, The Prophet, in um, There's a Light That Never Goes Out um, on The Queen Is Dead, you know, one of their most famous songs. So, you know, when, he, when, when Viva Hate's coming together, he hasn't really started to explore this whole nationalism idea. Uh, but this is something that comes to the forefront. He wants to get this particular photo um, of young skinheads. 
as he's starting to come out of Bona Drag. Bona Drag crystallizes everything that was really going on with Morrissey in terms of developing the formative piece of this. Viva Hate is kind of a one-off. There, there's a lot of experimentation for experimentation's sake. There's a lot of obvious input coming from other parties. You can hear Vinnie Riley all over the record, and Stephen Street as well. But when you go to the Bona Drag compilation, now it, it's a compilation, yeah, but most of the singles that it compiles were written and recorded within the span of a year and a half. So it's sort of a body of work. And in that way, you know, I think there's some argument to be made that Bona Drag should be treated as a standalone release. And if you do treat it that way, instead of saying, well, it's a best of, it's not a best of. It's a collection of singles from a very short window of time. And it is one of the best records ever released. There is not a bad song on it. Not even He Knows I'd Love to See Him. Not even We'll Never Marry. That record is, the supremacy of that record in the history of like rock and pop music is just uncontestable to me. But you have to kind of set it aside because it wasn't promoted as an album, it was promoted as a compilation and it didn't have a kind of thematic bent to it the way his other records in his solo period did. And so when Viva Hate comes out with his mug on the cover and it cements the idea that Morrissey is now a solo artist, the singles keep him in the charts and they keep him in the trades, but now he has to go write an album. And so he sits down and he tries to write a cohesive album, an album that's clearly coming out of a, a unified mindset, a, a series of events and memories, and, and he kind of he wraps them all into a, you know, a single diarist kind of a thing in Kill Uncle. When I mention the bipolar aspect of his solo career, you know, what that is to me is that you have the kind of glamorous, rocking, reverb crashing Viva Hate with its, you know, huge amounts of, of you know, bold persona and bravado. But then after it, you have this incredibly sullen, personal album in Kill Uncle. You have the same pattern happen when he overcorrects from Kill Uncle and goes back to the rock star swagger thing with your arsenal. Then he retreats again into a more somber, quiet record with Vauxhall and I. So that, that pattern, that one-two, one-two, the bipolar jump between these four records is a really interesting um, kind of thread that you can follow. Now Kill Uncle is almost universally considered you know, one of, if not Morrissey's weakest records. Well, of course, it's my second favorite Morrissey record. I still think um, Our Frank, the opening track, is fantastic. I still think um, Sing Your Life is one of the best singles he ever did. I mean, the video is kind of corny, but what video isn't corny, you know? I mean, there's so much interesting stuff on that record. Um, 
really quiet, strange little songs. Um, There's a place in hell for me and my friends. Yeah, it's it's not full of chart singles. There's there really aren't any chart singles on that record, and it also sort of suffers for not having Ouija board on it, which is an extremely strong single. It's on Bond of Drag, um, and that song really should have been kept over for Kill Uncle because I think with that you really would have gotten the complete sweep of this weird kind of small, quiet, drawing room um, feel that he has going on uh, with Kill Uncle. Ouija boards, would you work for me? I have got to say hello to an old friend. Ouija board, Ouija board, Ouija board. Would you work for me? I have got to get through to a good friend. There's a lot of great, honest, impressionistic um, nationalism in there without it being nationalism, which is the big problem you got into on your arsenal. The thing you have to understand, there are tons of examples of Morrissey saying things, writing songs, and performing songs that essentially have uh, racist overtones. But the reason for that is there are racist overtones historically throughout English society. Well, the simple fact of the matter is that we do not have sufficient houses, jobs, and schools for our own people, let alone immigrants, be they black, brown, yellow, or green. It simply boils down to a question of numbers. Well, of course, there are far too many immigrants in this country. When will the public wake up to the fact that you cannot put a quart into a pint bottle? About 12 or so years ago, there was very, very few people in Southall who were prejudiced. We did everything we possibly could to make these people welcome and help them when they first came here. But as there's been more and more come into the town, we've said to the authorities, please, no more. We're full up. Still, they keep coming in by the hundred. Today, there's very few people in Southall who are not prejudiced. We hate and unless something's done about this quick, that prejudice is going to be sheer bloody hatred. The National Front was going off in the late 70s when Morrissey was coming of age and going to shows. The National Front was a completely racist, you know, white supremacist group. And these are people he knew that were in the National Front. He knew tons of people that were in it. So what he's doing is he's looking back on something that happened. Whether or not, you know, you endorse it, it's part of the fabric of your culture. The National Front was fucking huge in the late 70s in England. And they're huge again, except now they're called the UK Independence Party. To deny that, to spend all your time um, just saying, I'm better than that, that never happened, we don't need to concern ourselves with that. That doesn't represent England. Of course it does. It represents something that happened in your society. It would be like saying the KKK never existed in America. What he's doing in these songs, and what particularly he was doing with your arsenal, and kind of Boz Bohr and Alan White, when he's got these you know, rockabilly you know, denim and leather, and he's got these guys around him, his gang of hoods, um, He's creating a total package. He's creating a set of signs and signifiers that embody a pride um, and, an, and a sense of empowerment 
that a lot of very poor and lower working class people around him growing up fell victim to. There is a lot to consider with the line, hang the DJ. You know what you mean when you scream, hang the DJ. You know, and you probably mean the annoying, you know, EDM guy or the, the obnoxious hipster who's playing, you know, whatever it is they're playing incessantly when all you want to hear is something familiar so you can have a good night. Um, he was saying something really different, and it does have a racial context to it. There's no question. He had a big problem with dance music, with dance culture. I think it's a huge leap on my part, but I do think that has something to do with his own problems. Um, perhaps not explicitly sexually, but certainly socially. Um, and he was wrong in that. He was dead wrong. That was a really poor, small-minded aspect of Morrissey um, that got out, and it got out cleanly, and there's no mistaking it. So with your arsenal, he overcorrects for the loose acoustic poetry and the kind of flowing characteristics of Kill Uncle. He overcorrects completely, and he makes the tightest, you know, straight-ahead 4-4 rock songs, Tony the Pony, uh, Tomorrow, We Hate It When Our Friends Become Successful. Um, and any, this is also around the time he's done November Spawned a Monster, which was his big Madchester song. Um, you know, everybody had a Manchester song at that time. You had uh, James. Everybody was doing one. Except, I guess, New Order. Did New Order ever really do a baggy song? World in Motion wasn't baggy. That was kind of Eurodance. Is that like the only thing New Order never did was Manchester? I don't know. So with your arsenal, he's got his guys with the low-slung guitars. You know, they might as well have dice in the windows and they're, you know, it's, it's just a complete sermon about, you know, the history of, of hooliganism and gangsterism in England, you know, the Cray twins, which he'd already done Last of the Famous International Playboys about, um, you know, that, that whole thing, this, these, these small pockets, like I said, of pride, of, of trying to establish an identity when you're so divorced from the government and the conservatives have been in power for so long and they're so detached to say nothing of the royals and the aristocracy because you don't want to be out there and say, you know, I'm a Republican. That's kind of a, a duff, nothing answer. You know, to say you're a Republican, in England, a Republican means you're basically an anti-royalist. It means you don't want arist aristocracy, you don't, you know, you want representative government across all lines and you don't want taxes and money going to people who don't do anything except, you know, national propaganda, <laughs> you know, go on the world stage and be on the cover of people when they have a baby. So you have this history of famous playboys and gangsters and, and people who basically are able to, through you know, horrible means, sure, um, but they, they live outside the society by their own rules. They take what they want. You know, he has a nostalgia for this. There's no question about it. And when you look at some of the realities behind, let's say, factory records and, and the Hacienda, there were crimes being committed on a daily basis in the Hacienda by the Hacienda staff, whether it was fraudulent, you know, cooking the books, fraudulent accounting, 
later drug sales. I mean, the list is endless. They were committing the typical kind of, you know, backroom channel stuffing, you know, money into the table, all that stuff. That's, there's a tenor of, of English society there that is still sort of happening. But it was very much the way things worked when Morrissey was growing up. And so, the, you know, the bigger songs on, on your arsenal are about that. They're about this sense of this lost sense of what it means to be English. And it famously devolves into England for the English. You know, I think if he, if he was to talk about that, he would say it's not a racist comment, it's a behavioral comment. He's saying the English are the working class, the people who conduct themselves, you know, with some pride and, and some confidence and who deal with other people in a kind of a one-to-one -one way. It's not necessary for you to be white to conduct yourself that way, you know. So without avowing um, kind of the, the racial stereotypes that go along with, you know, people who are on the dole or are given advantages and social status or they live in, you know, secluded communities, um, sometimes by choice, other times by, you know, ghettoization. Um, it's a very blurry subject and it doesn't help when you're writing songs like Bengali and Platforms. Um, you know, he's made some serious mistakes in terms of wanting to have this dialogue around nationalist, you know, sentiment and some empathy for where that comes from. Um, and then also, it's, you know, it's having your cake and eating it too. He also wants to make sardonic commentary about, you know, absurdities that he sees. Um, but you can't do both of those things because the one contaminates the other. And, you know, that's just something that can't be resolved. It's a flaw in Morrissey that he doesn't recognize. And because he's already put all this different stuff out there, he can't take it back. Some distant land 